the very first lesson that I got was she was with a terminally ill cancer patient. Seven years, this woman had been holding on. She had kids that she really cared about. She was pretty young, but my teacher was there and just saying, it's okay to die. And my teacher said the coolest thing that really resonated with this woman is she said, when my mother passed away, that's when my mother really helped the family thrive. For some reason, the woman just started crying when she said that. And my teacher said, it's okay to die. Let go, it's fine. And her husband called the next day and thanked my teacher. He said, I don't know what happened, but whatever you said, my wife came home and she peacefully passed away in her sleep with the entire family around her. Reagan Archibald is one of the leading peptide specialists in the nation and serves as a regenerative therapy and peptide consultant at the award-winning clinic he founded in 2004, East-West Health, an integrated pain specialist. Reagan is the founder of Go Wellness and is the creator of the Peptide Mastery course. He is the author of eight books, including Never Stop Healing and Your Health Transformation. When not teaching, writing, or working with patients in office or virtually, you will find Reagan in the Wasatch Mountains with his wife, Jessica, and three kids. Reagan is just an awesome guy. I've loved working with him. I've loved being in conversation with him. And yeah, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. All right. Well, welcome to the uh, Gravity Podcast. We're here with Reagan Archibald. Reagan, thanks for taking some time to to join me on the podcast. Man, so good to be here, Brett. Yeah, it's great to have a chance to spend some time with you here. I've enjoyed getting to know you a little bit through Strategic Coach and other groups that we're both involved in and getting a chance to work with you directly and yeah, just excited to learn more about your path to the work that you're doing. Man, well, I'm excited to share it. And, and uh, hopefully there'll be some fascinating nuggets that people can chew on as we go throughout it. Good. Well, let's start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about your early life. I'd like to just know, just for starters, you know, where you're from and and kind of how you were raised, the the family dynamics that maybe were important to you in your in your early life. I was uh, raised on a farm in Idaho, just uh, north of a town called Rexburg. So if you're if you're driving um, to from like Salt Lake City to Yellowstone Park, for example, you'll drive right by our farm. It's right off the the main freeway there. And so I, I grew up hardworking. Uh, my weekends were spent, you know, either on horses or uh, wrangling cows and my friends are playing and I got, I got work. And so I had a desire when I was older, I said, I want to be anything but a rancher. I love the work. Uh, don't get me wrong. There's something really satisfying about it, but I just didn't want to do that kind of labor. And I had an uncle who was a doctor. And so he was someone who I always looked up to and I admired and just a really gentle soul. And I said, I want to be like Lester J when I grow up. And so it got me interested in in medicine. And and the other thing that got me interested in medicine is the way I could get out of farm work is if I made the football team or the basketball team or the track team. And and if, for those of you who know me, I'm not athletically gifted. I'm 5'9 on a good day. And so uh, making the teams wasn't always easy. So I started reading books on nutrition and, and books on health. And then I um, learned, uh, I read this book by Dan Millman called The Inner Athlete when I was 13. And mm -hmm. that book changed my my whole mindset because he brought in some Eastern philosophies. And uh, it was my first introduction to it. You know, growing up in a small Idaho town, we had one predominant Christian religion, and that's really all I was exposed to. And so at 13, I started visualizing and I started using, um, you know, imagery to uh, accelerate my athletic performance and started studying the brain at that age. And um, just mm. I, I just uh, couldn't get enough of it. I mean, I, Interesting. I, I'd go to nutritional stores, I'd buy all their books up. And so <laughs> wow. it, was, it was a fascination from from that early age, more of a freedom from farm work led me to a freedom to do something else. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because in having done, you know, enough of these, you learn everyone takes a different path to their work. Some people really do discover what it is that they're passionate about at a young age. 
Yeah, just kind of struck by your curiosity at that age to kind of start to go down that rabbit hole and really start to look at things like nutrition. I mean, these are not things that most 13-year-old boys, I, I suspect, you know, on the farm are really thinking about. So this yep. is, you know, something that's clearly a calling, you know, unique to you, this deep curiosity on this subject matter at a at a young age. Yeah. Yeah. Super fascinating. I mean, I even, uh, one of the, uh, things I did, uh, my basketball team, I was reading, uh, all the, all the work by, uh, Lois Pauling on vitamin C and, and, uh, one basketball game, I gave the entire team eight grams of vitamin C and I'm like, we're going to crush it tonight. Everyone's going to have better endurance or cardiovascular fitness going to be awesome. It's it, <laughs> By the end of the first quarter, we were all like off the court because of diarrhea. So I, I, I <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I learned from an early age that uh, even natural medicine has some side effects. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. I mean, I love the fact that you were even thinking about how to play team doc at a young age and um, funny, yeah. you know also funny that the the, the guys just uh, trusted you enough to go for it and. And having it backfire was probably uh, was probably pretty uh, entertaining for all of you too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, no and doubt. what were your um, your parents like? You know, I'm kind of curious to to hear more about you know the 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 rest of the family and and that dynamic. You know, did you have the support encouragement to um, do something? You know, off the farm. You know, were your parents supportive of you not going down the ranching path? You know, what was that like? Yeah. Oh yeah. They were, they loved it. My, my parents um, were at every basketball game or every football game. Like I'd be at a high school um, football game, Brett, and I would get a hand. I was a running back. I could literally hear my mom through all the screams. I could hear my mom run, run, <laughs> Reagan, run. And, and I was just like, I get so embarrassed because, but they were my biggest fans. Like they yeah. still are they're my, my biggest support. Like I was on the phone with them last night and they're like, mm. thank you for all the peptides. We love it. We feel so good. And we just yeah. feel so blessed and we need to pay you for that. I'm like, there's no way in hell you guys are paying me for your, like you guys, they've just, paved the road for me to be whoever I wanted to be in life. Wow. And did you have siblings too? What was the yeah. rest of the family makeup? Big family. I had two older sisters and then a younger sister. And then I have a brother who's 10 years younger than me. And he's he's also a business partner. He He studied business and he and I have been involved in several enterprises and and so he was, it, it was fun. I, I was kind of like the oldest son and the oldest son on the Archibald side. So I got to spend a lot more time with like my grandpa, my uncles doing all the farm work uh, more so than the rest of my cousins. Cause everyone came about a decade after me, all the other men in the family and the, the girls didn't really work on the farm much, um, but you know, they come hang out, but it was mostly me. So I, I really learned a, a great work ethic as a kid. I think that's where strategic coach has been awesome for me because uh, all I learned is the value of your life is directly correlated to how hard you work. <laughs> so Dan Sullivan helped me reframe the thinking about work and actually taking free days, which has been awesome for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we could get more into that. I was just sharing with you before we started, I just got back from two days at coach and Everybody there wanted to know if I was working with Reagan. So uh, <laughs> I, I know that community has been very valuable for both of us and so yeah. many more. And yeah, Dan continues to inspire and his teaching and and though just the way he lives. So we've both been blessed that way. So tell me, you know, you're playing uh, armchair team trainer, doc, your teenager, really finding something that that has you it sounds like very curious and passionate and interested. Where do you go from there? So um, I ended up landing at the University of Utah and decided to study pre-medicine. There's a great medical program there. And uh, that's when my health, I, I started getting eczema kind of in my later years of high school, junior, senior year. And I didn't think anything of it. Uh, so I would like change my diet and do all these kind of weird supplements none of which worked because I was, you know, uh, you know, you don't know what you don't know at that age. And the books can only lead you so far, but 
it was finally at the University of Utah, I got uh, misdiagnosed by five different doctors up there. They just looked at my labs and they said, everything looks normal. They ran the typical conventional medical labs and they said, well, we, we just think the skin issues come caused by stress. But I would say, well, I also have brain fog. My hair is falling out. I'm like, I'm losing my athletic ability. I was actually getting weaker in my early twenties and it didn't make sense. I guess, 20, 21, 22. And finally I went to a naturopathic doctor and he actually ran the right labs. And he was also, he'd studied Eastern medicine. And so he got me on Chinese herbs. We changed my diet. And, um, it wasn't until I got learned I had an autoimmune condition called Hashimoto's disease. And that was my, my thyroid peroxidase antibodies. For those of you who know, those, those values, it was uh, close to 680 when we first ran it. So my thyroid was just being wrecked and I was in a thyroid storm and that triggered autoimmunity throughout my whole body. And that's what was one of the reasons why my hair was thinning. I was gaining weight. I felt sore all the time. I always felt like I got hit by a bus we looked at my Epstein viral load and my Epstein bar virus was off the charts as well. So, so it was, it was working with uh, this doctor that actually led me to more of an integrated medical path. So I left the university of Utah medical program in Salt Lake. And I went to a school in Hawaii to study more integrated Eastern medicine there and Western medicine. And, um, I remember my my parents, this was the one time where my dad was like, I don't know if this is the right thing, you know, leaving the conventional path. And uh, he was basically like, well, you can always go back and, you know, do ranch work or carpentry if it doesn't work out. And so I was like, well, this is the medicine that I really wanted to study. And um, that was 25 years ago. Mm. So I'm I'm so glad I didn't go down the conventional medical path because uh, a lot of my MD friends will tell me, they'll say, well, I wish I wasn't an MD because I have to, you know, the, the boards hold them mm -hmm. to standard where they can, they can only say certain things. They can only practice medicine in a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, I've always had a lot of freedom in the 20 years I've been practicing with my license and my scope. And then I can always bring on, I've had MDs working for me since the beginning mm -hmm. and, uh, nurse practitioners. So, so I ended up going to the school in Hawaii because it was founded by Earl Bakken. He's the inventor of the pacemaker. Mm. And um, the school was associated with one of the few hospitals in the country that actually had holistic modalities in the hospital itself. So that's where we did our internship, where every patient got acupuncture, healing touch, they'd get chiropractic care, they would get uh, naturopathic services along with their cardiology care, their endocrinology care. And so there's a really unique environment. And uh, Earl Bakken, even though he benefited from pacemakers, you know, the use of it, he was very wealthy, but he wanted to prevent as many pacemakers going into human bodies as possible because he felt that there was a thing called prevention that we could actually eliminate that if we caught it in time. And so that was, that was my training. You know, I got to spend uh, four over four years in Hawaii on the big Island. Wow. Uh, not a bad place to be. And, you know, I was actually thinking a little bit about, the environment that you're in when you choose to go down an alternate path in life in general, and I think specifically in medicine, whenever somebody, you know, kind of goes down a path that's outside of the norm or the, the system that's been broadly adopted there's usually a lot of criticism, judgment, doubt, uh, a lot of things that can create friction and and keep people from going down that path or feeling comfortable going down that path. I think you know Doug Brockman talks about the drivens, and you mm -hmm. know I've seen this in in other areas where you know people come up with ideas that are against the norm, you know, they're often sort of shamed or shunned. And, you know, again, I think it definitely is a real thing in medicine. And I'm wondering, you know, you being in the, the, in the part of the country that you're in or in a, an environment like Utah or Western cities, and certainly then in Hawaii, like what sort of 
friction was there for you in going down this path or you know how important was it to be in an environment that was supportive of that path mm. yeah great question because um uh, you know i think for the most part yeah, you've done the strengths finder and so mm-hmm. uh um, what do you, do you remember your top five strengths off the top? Oh of your gosh, head? you know, it's been years and, and I, I don't really focus on that one as much as I do like Colby and Colby, print. Yeah. And yeah sure. So those, those uh, are, yeah. yeah. So my, my number one is self-assurance. And so, <laughs> so I think, uh, Dan always teases me, uh, you know, he's Dan Sullivan's like, well, I can put anything on you. I can tease you or at the last strategic coach event, he called me a hunk, which I was like, whoa. He's like, <laughs> he's like, if I didn't know your your number one was self-assurance, I wouldn't have teased you like that. And so um, I was like, well, please don't do that again. But anyway, uh, um, but I always, I think I had a lot of support, you know, like I mentioned, my parents have always been like insanely supportive, like mm-hmm. ridiculously, even if they felt like I was, you know, maybe not like going down the path that they thought would be the easiest. They always knew I'd find a way. And so I, I think on the opposing side, I have a, a brother-in-law. I don't, I don't think he'll mind me sharing this. He's a surgeon. And so he was in medical school the same time I was, he was actually doing his surgical residency and he was just like, what are you doing? Like, there's no science behind it. There's no validity behind holistic medicine. And, you know, so we'd have these like pretty drawn out, um, you know, kind of debates about it. And um, interestingly enough, it actually just made me that much more resolved in my point. You know, I think, you know, we we all question our beliefs, except the ones we believe most. And so I just um, kind of, I, I, I always believed the body could heal itself. And that, and then I just went on the pursuit of finding out how to do that in the best possible way and uh, re- recognizing that only a degree, uh, me passing my boards just gave me the opportunity to go down that path even further and have the freedom to pursue whatever I wanted to pursue. And so so I think I, I was in an environment that was both supportive, but also there was some opposing voices and then mm-hmm. recognizing you know, if you go back and study the history of medicine, I had a professor uh, named Dr. Bauman at the University of Utah. And I took the history of medicine from him. And if anyone's read the Flexner report, you'll start realizing just how how medicine was formed and confined to a certain set of, of standards that were set by essentially the Rockefellers so that medicine was based more on chemicals and symptom suppression versus based on, uh, you know, actually allowing the body to heal. So, mm-hmm. so I think um, I was fortunate to have the right instructors at the right time so that I could kind of tune out the uh, naysayers, you know, because when you're studying alternative medicine, um, especially in the 90s and the early 2000s, like the internet's just coming to, to life. And so uh, most of my knowledge came from libraries and books. And so it was, Mm -hmm. you know, you really had to dig deep to find really good data on it that would convince me because I've always been very grounded in science and I love physics and I love physiology and anatomy, the hard sciences. I mean, I'm really boring. Like I I love reading um, books on hard science even today more than anything. And but yet I also knew that the hard sciences, the way that allopathic medicine was designed, wasn't going to solve the problems that I wanted to solve for people in their their health journey. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, I've got a bunch of questions about, you know, kind of the current system and, you know, the challenges there and, and how you're operating. But just before we go there, tell me a little bit more of you know, what, what happens then, you know, in Hawaii um, and, and where do you then take your next step? I'm imagining like, I don't know if this is true, but like you're in Hawaii for four years, you know, and you're studying acupuncture and all these, you know, alternative modalities that to me are super exciting and enjoyable and healing. And this is your life. I don't know. This yeah. was it as good as it sounds. It, it was a lot of work. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was so much work. Um, You're because, not just getting acupuncture all day. 
<laughs> no, that was a very small portion of it. Um, you uh -huh. know, doing the, you know, my internship was on the weekends. I was the whitest guy in the island. I mean, I barely made it to the beach. I could, I would see it as I'd drive to and from the school. Mm -hmm. And they also had a construction business. So the way to, that I made it through school was I had this um, business where we do build decks and do side projects. And so I was also running that. And I had a you know few people that would you know contractors that I would uh, employ, and so it was it was a lot of work. It was um, you know the my twenties were um, definitely uh, nonstop, but I loved every minute of it. But one of the the most important things that happened to me in my my journey is I met you know I, I as I went on to the island, I I had one of my professors at the U said the best way you can learn medicine is to actually find a mentor you can't learn it from books it's just not practical and so um i learned about a teacher uh named dr chika mayakawa or a, a famous doctor on the island everybody i i talked to i said oh i'm here at the uh, integrated medical school of hawaii and they say oh you got to meet dr mayakawa she saved my my vision my you know i dove off i had a concussion and i was blind for a year and she re covered my vision and there you know there's just stories like that and so when I showed up at her clinic I knocked on the door and uh, it was after hours and uh, I just said hey I'd love to be your apprentice can I come and study with you and she said no I'm not taking any students and basically like didn't have any interest in me at all and so I went again and again and and in the Japanese culture you can't just write out a check and expect somebody to teach you their knowledge and they want to and I didn't realize this but I had a friend who was Japanese and so he encouraged me he's like this is you know you need to do something of service to actually show that you're useful and so I said all right well I'll go and um you know I'll help her clean up the clinic at the end of her shifts it's right when I'm getting off school and so for 2 months I would just stop and help her help everything get uh, cleaned in her, her clinic. And, and then after two months, she looked at me one day and she said, Reagan, son, you can come in the room. And she said, <laughs> don't move the air. And I was like, what does that even mean? Don't move the air. And so I just was trying not to breathe when I was in there, but she basically was like, don't, don't even say anything. You're going to make a fool of yourself. So, mm -hmm. so I was in the room and the very first lesson that I got was she was with a terminally ill cancer patient seven years this woman had been holding on she had kids that she really cared about she was pretty young but my teacher was there and just saying it's okay to die and my teacher said the coolest thing that really resonated with this woman is she said when my mother passed away that's when my mother really helped the family thrive and uh, for some reason that the woman just started crying when she said that and my teacher said it's okay to die let go it's fine and so um that woman went home that that evening and her husband called the next day and 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 thanked my teacher she, she said i don't i don't know what happened but whatever you said my wife came home and she peacefully passed away in her sleep with the entire family around her mm -hmm. she let go that was a really uh, defining moment in my career because you know, I, I always thought, well, I'm going to help people live forever. And, you know, I read about all these like Eastern monks who lived to be like 200 years old and they, you know, were in the Himalayas and they're meditating. And, and um, I just realized like from that moment that sometimes it's okay to die. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I have this, this, this terminology that we use called compressed morbidity and compressed morbidity means like we all have a certain um, lifespan that we live. And I don't know that there's, anything that predicts it. I just like to, I know what we can measure, which is a lot of the physiological functions, but when it's your time to go, the healthier you are, the faster your death will be. If you look at where most people die, they have about a 10 year span of life where their quality of life decreases by about 90%. And then they're hanging on to 10% of barely living and then they die really slow. And so that um moment with my teacher taught me the this this term called compressed morbidity and and so i think my teacher said if i would have been working with that patient sooner she would have died a lot faster and i was like wow that is fascinating so mm. so I, yeah that, that that actually uh hits home because my father is in uh, hospice and you know his end of life but he is dying very slowly and you know i'm not wishing it but it's um 
you know, he's suffering too. And so the quality of life, you know, is not great by any means, but he's scared and, you know, he um, doesn't want to die. And I have tempted just, you know, instinctually, intuitively, and based on my own beliefs and faith, you know, attempted to share with him that it's okay to die. Mm. Um, you know, maybe it's not so bad. Um, right. You know, he his faith is different in that he just doesn't believe there's anything after this. And so I think that's, you know, scaring him. But it's interesting for to to hear you say that, you know, those words, because I agree with you. Now, I'm not the one that's facing death, you know, and I wonder sure. sometimes how I would feel if I heard that at, at a time at the end of life when I wasn't ready, you know, right. but uh, I think those are good words, you know, for people to hear, especially from somebody who's practicing medicine you know, just simply like, it's okay to die. And I like the idea of this compressed morbidity where you're, you know, what you're saying is like, actually live longer, healthier, happier, and then die soon after. Right. Yeah. yeah. Don't labor the death part. I think that's, I think that's the, the moral of the, the story. And when we, when we talk about longevity and, you know, people's uh, ideas i think it's actually really important to think about death which is kind of funny because we're talking about you know health so often but far too too infrequently people actually think about their death and so i'm yeah i'm sorry about your father i remember you sharing that with me it's it's devastating to watch because um you know how many of us have someone who is you know basically dying from neglect where they neglected their health for their entire life and now they're kind of looking back, wishing they would have done something different. I see people like that every day where they they say, I wish I would have done something about my health 10 years ago. Or they say, where were you 10 years ago? I'm like, well, mm -hmm. where were you 10 years ago? <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me kind of how you ended up moving into your, your business, your practice from that place, having that that mentor. I, I also really like and want to highlight that concept of it's much better to learn from a mentor, from shadowing, watching, observing, learning directly than it is from a textbook. And, you know, textbooks have their place too, but I think people learn differently. And for me, no doubt, so much better to learn from seeing it, experiencing it, watching it. So tell me, you know, where you go after that experience. Well, um, in Hawaii, the big choice was, you know, stay in Hawaii, paradise, you know, put it in parentheses. For those of you who have lived there full time, you understand that it's got its own set of issues and and it's it's not an easy place to live. And, you know, especially at that time when you're broken, living on, uh, you know, we uh, lived on this uh, chicken farm, this uh, avocado and chicken farm. And so I, I lived in a coffee shack and it was held together by termites, but, you know, kind of lived on the land there, but I didn't want to, I didn't want that quality of life. And, and um, my wife at the time, uh, we just had our uh, daughter Zoe was born. And so um, we wanted to be closer to family. And then Utah just seemed like a really good place to um, uh, anchor in because I love the mountains and I love the seasons. Uh, I missed skiing and snowboarding. Uh, I mean, you, you bring your, your, you come with your sons up to park city. And so it's a, you know, Hawaii is great, but I'm more of a mountain man at, uh, you know, in my heart. And so came back to Utah, um, started my clinic in 04. Yeah, it was, it was fun. It was challenging getting started. But what I did is I worked with a neurologist. I just wanted to network with people. And this neurologist, um, she and I became really good friends. And so we started sharing patients. And then we actually started working together after about a year. And then her daughter was in medical school. And her daughter was my first uh, MD that I hired uh, officially. And so, so I started building a team at an early pretty much right out of the gates and, um, you know, called my clinic East West health because I always, I wanted to merge the two medicines. I wanted to have some of the most cutting edge Western, uh, medicine and use some of the, uh, the best diagnostic tests. And, but I also wanted to have the, the Eastern influence, you know, the, 
the stuff that worked 2,500 years ago still works today. It's kind of interesting. Biology mm-hmm. does change, but not that much. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, yeah, I started working uh, that way. I got into functional medicine uh, early on before it was called functional medicine. And then I started teaching more of the functional medicine curriculum to originally acupuncturists. And then that opened doors to teach medical doctors and nurse practitioners. And so I I founded a company called Go Wellness about a decade ago, uh, maybe 12 years ago, actually. And that was the company that is more of an academic think tank that I still host um, conferences for doctors of all kinds once a quarter. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I always had a passion to uh, be involved in more rigorous academic conversations with a variety of practitioners. Mm-hmm. And what is the response when you get into an academic environment with MDs in particular or administration in, in the hospital systems? You know, are do you find that there's a little bit more of a an openness to your perspective, to what you do, your practice, or is it still pretty divided and tough to kind of move too far? You know, it's just probably like in any profession or with any human, when you when you bring a new opposing uh, theory to a conversation, there's always going to be some discomfort and conflict. But in general, it's been met with nothing, nothing but fascination because mm. I think in medicine and especially in the healthcare system today, people recognize it's broken. It's not the model that we want. Nobody loves waiting in the waiting room. Nobody goes to the ER and they're like, I just had a great experience. I mean, obviously you're in a crisis typically when you show up there, but it's rare that somebody goes to their primary care doctor and says, wow, I just feel really cared for. But you talk to the primary care doctor and it's rare to hear someone say, man, I just love working in the medical system. They really care about me. They want me to take time with the patients. They really want me to give the best care. It's it's such a um, an industry that's, this built around finances. It's a business, and, but it's it's in large part it's not ran by doctors anymore. So, mm-hmm. so I think if anything, Brett, it's a great question. But if anything, I've doctors reach out to me a couple times a week, wanting to get out of the system and asking mm-hmm. how I did it, and giving them a template so that they can open their own practice. Mm-hmm. And and so my my dream in the future, uh, and we're actually working on this right now. I've been working on it for 20 years, but my dream is to have a real medical model that has, you know, real science behind it, but also has innovative treatments that can actually take on the Western medical complex because mm-hmm. of the $0.3 trillion industry. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what people get at the end of the day is, you know, typically it's more prescriptions, more surgeries. We we operate three times more in the United States than any other country where we, we take uh, almost the same amount of medications, at least twice as much as the next industrialized country on medications. Mm-hmm. And yet, where are we as far as quality of life goes and life expectancy? We're kind of hovering around 45 to 50 most years. Mm-hmm. So I think I think there's an environment where people are now opening up to this whole new world of medicine. And um, this is where we're seeing it in regenerative medicine with stem cells. We're seeing it in more of the functional side with peptides. There's just a there's a whole world of optimizing health that exists that people have now woken up to, especially since 2020. That was a great mm-hmm. year for for uh, people on my side of the fence in medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and and I want to talk a little bit more about peptides and stem cells and you know things that you're doing and finding a lot of success with. But I I really have um, a pretty big concern, and uh, at times I feel a little lost in the current environment. You know, it's why it's been super helpful to have friends like you and and others that are thinking more innovatively and are a little bit more open, but it it does feel like docs, you know, I'm not surprised to hear them coming to you because I, I think most doctors, and maybe this is just a guess, but you know, the large majority of doctors get into practicing medicine for the right reasons that they actually do care about 
how they might be able to help somebody in their health and and consequently, you know, the impact that that has on their lives and their families. But it, it really seems like most doctors, and, and this part like feels pretty obvious, when you operate in a system, you know, if you're affiliated with a hospital or a group, you know, there's there's requirements from the business side of things, the tech that you use, the paperwork that you have to complete, the compliance for insurance, the risk that limits you from what you can say and do. Just the simple fact that you're probably working a full load and don't have time to learn about new things, right? You, you, yep. you just are like kind of constantly in a mode of, of reaction. And that just seems like a, a horrible way to actually be doing the very thing that you set out to do, which is help people. Um, And so, you know, it feels like, you know, there's a real like major, major flaw in the system that most people are totally unaware of. You know, maybe, maybe that might be the worst part is that because you have these letters MD or you are affiliated with a particular university or organization, hospital group, it might even simply be where you went to college, you know, because you have these credentials, you're trusted at, you know, extremely high level. And, you know, you might not actually be best qualified to, to treat someone. No question about it. I mean, when I graduated, uh, the academic dean at my school was the academic dean, former academic dean at uh, Cal Davis Medical School for years. And he said, um, medicine's at least 25 years behind the research. Don't fall into that category. Well, um, we just ran some, uh, there's some interesting papers that we we looked at and we ran some numbers and we've actually predicted that medicine is now closer to a hundred years behind the research. And and so it's just baffling. Like you just can't keep up to your point when you've got seven minute visits and you go, you have to go off rote memory about the diagnostics and what prescription needs to be put into play. It's and and then if you deviate from that system, then you can be held for malpractice. And it's lawyers, it's executives, it's insurance companies. The doctors don't run the medical system, and I and the doctors are well aware of that. And that's one of the reasons why they are really frustrated with it. Mm-hmm. But um, with AI, I mean, it's so exciting. My job got 10 times easier last December. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so keeping notes and making sure we have incredible, impeccable details on every uh, treatment protocol and every plan and and getting the uh, scientific documentation in these treatment protocols, is, it's been so fascinating. But I don't think we're going to see that in the major medical system for a while. Yeah, I, I had this download during a sabbatical a couple of years ago where I, I, and I still kind of question this because I, and it's probably not a, an either or, but the download really was that technology is coming into our lives to help us solve problems that we're otherwise having a really hard time solving. And so let's use it for good. And I think you're right, you know, AI, I, I also kind of the other side of that coin and again, both are probably true is something you said earlier. I think we tend to really overcomplicate it too. You know, there's probably a lot of truth to just breathing clean air, eating healthy foods, being in nature, surrounding yourself with friends and family, having fun. We probably, um, you know, could go back to things that were done, you know, hundreds of years ago and, and not need the advancements quite as much as we think, but nonetheless, I'm excited about, you know, things like AI and how that really can help people who don't really have the time get up a learning curve, you know, pretty fast and, you know, bottom line things, weed out things. I mean, it's, it's hopefully going to provide a bit of a solution to the, to the issue. Yeah. Well, it's just like, um, having technology as a partner, 
now we have a partner that's just so much more intuitive to what our needs actually are. You know, that's all it's been in in healthcare right now. It's been amazing. So mm-hmm. I think we'll see crazy advancements. We've already seen that. We're I'm working with a company right now where you know we we run a lot of blood labs, as you know, we run DNA, we run stool tests. And so now we've got AI who's actually going in there and they the AI has listened to thousands of hours of my podcasts and my my videos, my educational curriculum. And uh, it's taken what I've written in my books, and then the AI will is actually layering, layering in the diagnostics based on what the lab values are reading. And so next time I run your labs, I'll, you're going to just be fascinated because it will show you exactly what what Reagan would say. And then I'm obviously before we ever would give anything uh, to our our patients, then they'll have um you know we'll have a human oversight to make sure it all looks good and then we'll touch some things up but then it's a living report because as the data changes your documents going your lab values the recommendations on based on what your lab values were that's going to be a living document where it's always being updated with the new science so mm-hmm. so it's a way of of pulling the you know the the future into the present so that we can we can be as nimble as we possibly can through the use of some of the AI. Mm, very cool. Well, why don't you take a few minutes and just share with the audience who doesn't know you, you know, a little bit about more about what you're doing and any specialties that you want to share that you know you've really been focusing. You mentioned peptides and stem cells, and you know, love to have you share a little bit more with the audience your practice. Oh, cool. I appreciate that. So I'm the founder of East West Health. And essentially what what I do is I uh, look at blood labs in very detailed ways. I narrow the ranges. So what your doctor may say uh, looks normal. We're going to look at it through a different lens and narrow the ranges so that we can see where your body could be manifesting a disease process that hasn't been diagnosed yet or hasn't shown up with any symptoms so that we can get ahead of your health instead of being you know reactive waiting for things to break where we tend to be proactive just by the way we look at the data so it can be your blood labs your genetics it can be your stool test your uh, metabolomics whatever tests that you look at we want to we want to be more predictive by nature and then one of the things that i've been obsessed with for the last decade are peptides and so I take your lab values and then I and then I, I look at what your subjective goals are as well. And so a lot of people who work with me, they want to improve their cardiovascular function. They want to, you know, usually get rid of a little bit of weight. They uh, a lot of us want six packs, you know, and, and us us dudes especially, we we we're concerned about our body composition. And then I also work with people who have you know, autoimmune disease, polycystic ovarian syndrome. I just wrote a big paper on that, uh, neurological issues. I love, I love seeing people's lives change uh, through the medicine, but I look at the labs and then I, I stack peptides every single month based on what your labs show. Then I work on what, what are called peptide pathways. And so what I've learned is if we can upregulate the genes in your body that need upregulating, if we can turn on the healthy expression of your cells, then you don't need to be on something chronically. This is one of the reasons I'll, you know, shift you on and off peptides throughout the course of care is because once the genes are turned on, then you have this beautiful healing momentum and that's where we can really keep your body moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, love the peptides on the stem cell side, you know, one of the nine hallmarks of aging, uh, and, and I just spoken at event, um, you know, Richard Rossi's event, the Da Vinci 50. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was in Sundance here in, in my backyard. And, and so, uh, I, I spoke on, um, the nine hallmarks of age reversal. So there's the nine hallmarks of aging, but I spoke on the nine hallmarks of age reversal and the eighth of the ninth is uh, stem cell exhaustion. And mm-hmm. so um, one of the things that happens as we age is our cells lose their integrity. So we don't get that perfect photocopy of the DNA. And then our cells start to throw off different inflammatory cytokines. And that's what institutes uh, you know, any kind of aging uh, diseases, which, yeah, at the end of the day, aging is the number one disease 
And so um, we use stem cells from umbilical cord tissue from allografts. And actually one of the labs we use is there in Ohio. And um, these are from mothers who have been heavily screened. Um, we can't manipulate the stem cells. So you'd have to go across the border to get any kind of uh, stem cells that have been grown and cultured. But what we can use is the natural substances that come from the perinatal tissue allograph. And that's where we see phenomenal things from regenerating joints to rejuvenating the brain. There's a nasal mist that we use with a sphenocat that's just phenomenal for people who've had concussions or um, memory issues, ADD. And then we do um, full body regeneration. Uh, mm. So we use ozone, we use um, different IVs. We, we do a lot of IVs with cerebrolysin and different peptides. And that seems to really give people a, a big boost. And then Probably one of my favorite things that we do is we host longevity retreats. And so uh, I got to get you out to one of my retreats in the, yeah. we do it in, in the clinic. Uh, yeah. uh, they're so fun because we just bring really cool people together and and we create a community. And then uh, everybody's, you know, we go through a peptide party, a stem cell party, and everybody has a, a great uh, time and they can heal together. And then usually business deals are, are made <laughs> too, right? They're organic. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, talk just a little bit about, you know, peptides from the standpoint of some of the criticism out there, you know, people will say, oh, you know, we're slinging peptides around too freely. We don't really know long-term effects. A lot of people have been on the Zempic Moderna route. There's, you know, some, I think, unknowns, maybe some potential risks, you know, maybe you could just speak to your view on peptides. Yeah. So um, there's 7,000 known peptides that exist in the human body and about 700 of those have been like studied and sequenced. So there's more that we don't know than what we know. I'll start with that. And um, I love peptides because I'm learning more and more about those every single day. It's it, It's been a fascinating journey. But there are peptides like insulin that are life-saving. And uh, insulin was sequenced over 100 years ago. And since then, we've just been on this, this trailblazing uh, exploration of finding what peptides work the best. So there's about 50 core peptides that we've discovered that are just protein structures. So if you think of a peptide, it's a, it's a geometric shape in your body. And anytime, if you remember from chemistry, anytime you break those, those bonds in in the peptide structures that's what triggers the genetic response in in the body it's how the body communicates so it's this energetic transfer and um certain peptides like you mentioned like ozembic or manjuro wagovi those peptides yes they get a lot of criticism and people are saying oh he's got the ozembic face like tom hanks or whatever celebrity someone wants to you know clown on but if you look at what existed before those peptides for weight loss there was nothing, nothing that was, I mean, fentramine where people are having heart attacks. I mean, there's nothing that was as predictable and as useful as these peptides. So the only criticism I have is that doctors are prescribing way too high of doses mm -hmm. and they're not using other peptides with it. But if you stack it with like BPC-157 or tessamorelin, ipramorelin or CJC-1295, these peptides are going to allow you to maintain your muscle mass why your body gets more insulin sensitive and so instead of just throwing out the baby with the bathwater, which is what you know people online love to do it's like well maybe we should just think about using microdoses of these glp1 agonists that's what uh these like trizepatide for example is a glp and a gip so it's like she's working on two different pathways whereas um like ozembic is is semaglutide that's the peptide structure it's just working on one but what we found is that, that these things are miraculous they're phenomenal and the best thing that happens is you don't have to fight with biology because our biology we're hardwired to want sugar to want fat we want to overeat because you know our biology we we don't we want to survive just like anything else and so we have this this endless option of food 24 hours a day seven days a week and uh, sometimes willpower runs out and that's where i love peptides like like semaglutide or trizepatide even we can use a nasal spray called c-link and c-link upregulates uh 43 receptors that relate to gaba and serotonin 
And um, it's a phenomenal peptide because it's just a nasal spray and it can help some of those cravings go away or some of the anxiety type eating. So, mm -hmm. so, so yes, I do love these peptides. There are side effects. If you take too much trizepatide, too much semaglutide, you can get um, a decline in your total muscle mass. You can become skinny fat really quick if you're not exercising on those. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so be careful. The other thing that happens is you can have a delay in gastric emptying, which means you can get a lot of acid reflux. You can get indigestion. You can get really sick. And in some studies where, where they use really high doses, and this was in a rat model where they found that that rats that took semaglutide ended up with thyroid cancer. So, mm. you know, if you have thyroid issues, you also want to be careful because you don't want to go on a caloric restriction diet because that puts more stress on your thyroid. So mm -hmm. a lot of people forget to eat and they think it's just fine, but you do want to eat and you want to get uh, plenty of protein when you take these GLP ones. So make mm -hmm. sure you work with someone who knows what they're doing on it because that's where the side effects are. But for the most part, the, the other 50 peptides that we use, I mean, we can dose, uh, and we've done it in my, in my medical group. You can dose over 40 times the, the amount and mm -hmm. uh, your body discards what it doesn't need. And we haven't seen any major side effects. Mm. Great. Well, thank you for, uh, sharing that. And yeah, I think that part about, making sure you're working with somebody who knows what they're doing is critical and at times can be challenging to figure out, you know, exactly who that is. So glad that I've had a chance to work with you and um, yeah, I do want to come out and, and see the, uh, get the full experience and, and, yeah. you know, love to join one of your groups next time you do that. So we'll have to let me know, but anything else you want to share with the audience before we uh, wrap up? No, I just, um, I, I appreciate all the work you're doing. And so you're a very a thoughtful human. And uh, I think if more people could just kind of take the lead, just for you guys to know, I've seen Brett stand up and be very outspoken with a uh, very popular people in strategic coach. And I just, uh, you may know the incident that I'm referring to, but you got a lot of courage to say what what the truth is. And um, a lot of people don't have that. So, so I, I, I thank you for being the human that you are. Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. And uh, certainly, you know, at times like uh, we're in right now and in general, you know, I think whenever you need to stand up and stand for something, it's important to do that. So uh, it's always nice to have support from friends like you. And, you know, it, it does speak, I think, to this subject, you know, that I think is why I'm so passionate is there's a better way to do things. You know, there are things that people don't necessarily want to look at that aren't right. And you can look at a lot that is right in the world. And there's a lot that you can stand for and a lot that I think we should come together and, and try to change. And medicine is one of those things. So thanks for saying that, but thank you for what you're doing and for fighting the good fight. You got it. Thanks for having me on, Brett. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Reagan. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.